Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Nicole, and as always, I am joined here again by the lovely Journey and Rebecca. This week, Journey will be telling us about the case of Patricia Allen, and Rebecca will be educating us on the history and legal precedent of stalking. Um, this will be part one of our like two-part kind of series. Next episode will also be on stalking, but we're going to cover... Um, Richard Ramirez, and then more so the typologies behind stalking. Um, I would like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised, as there are detailed descriptions of suicide, domestic violence, stalking, and murder. And on that note, um, Journey, would you like to start us off with this Canadian case? Yeah, thank you, Nicole. Um, I really struggled with this case study because there wasn't really a lot of information available that I could find, at least. Um, But I was able to scrounge up enough to tell Patricia Allen's story. Um, I wasn't able to find, like, where she was born or who her parents were, but she was 31 when she died in 1991, so I know that she was born in 1960. Um, And a lot of the information that I was able to find began when she was in university. Um, So Patricia Allen graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from Ottawa. They didn't specify which university in Ottawa. Um, but after she graduated, she worked at an advertising agency until 1984 when she started law school at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec. Um, the law faculty at McGill was very close-knit and often described as a family, so professors got to know the students quite well, and they described Patricia as highly intelligent, absorbing, wickedly funny, hardworking, and had the potential for a very bright career ahead of her. And they were right as Patricia graduated top of her class. She met her future husband, Colin McGregor, at McGill in her third year. And so Colin was described also as a, quote, bright young man, end quote. He was class president and valedictorian at Marianopolis College in Quebec, where he got his undergraduate degree in a Bachelor of Arts in Literature. Um... After he graduated, he moved around Canada working at a series of newspapers before he returned back to Montreal. And when he returned, he enrolled at McGill. So he was there at the same time as Patricia, but I'm not totally sure what he was studying while he was there. They never really mentioned that. Um, They did mention that he was on the debate team and went to national championships, though, which I thought was kind of an odd piece of information to include. Um... So they met in 1987 at Thompson House, which is a place where all the graduate students hang out. Um, It has like study lounges, conference rooms, restaurants and bars in it. So you can just kind of like hang out. Um, And while they were dating, it was a very intense and brief. And so Colin was sending Patricia flowers every day and calling her constantly, um, which is a form of love bombing, which is a sign of a toxic relationship. So, um... After Patricia graduated, they got married, and they moved to Ottawa. Um, After moving to Ottawa, Colin got a job in communications for a pharmaceutical company, and Patricia was receiving tons of offers from a bunch of fancy law firms because she graduated top of her class, um, and she ended up taking a job with Revenue Canada as she had a very strong interest in tax law. Um, And so after working at Revenue Canada for only a year, she received a promotion that actually doubled her salary, which is so impressive. 
Um, unfortunately, Colin was not having the same success with his job, so he started working towards a master's degree in public administration. Um, and Patricia's success kind of struck a nerve for Colin, especially since he couldn't hold down a job, and so he became very possessive of her. This obviously started to cause some problems and essentially disintegrated their marriage, and so this is kind of where their story takes a nasty turn. While they were married, Patricia did witness a few angry outbursts from Colin, and my source says that they, were necess- they weren't necessarily directed towards her, but more so as at objects. So this could mean, like, he would get angry with her and then break a vase instead of, like, hitting her directly, which still isn't fantastic. Um, And then in May 1991, Patricia went on a business trip to Edmonton, and while she was gone, Colin visited the Ottawa Civic Hospital quite a few times. And so his psychological behavior was assessed over the course of a few days, and he was eventually admitted to the psychiatric ward for observation. And he was administered an antipsychotic drug during this hospital admission. And then in June 1991, Colin started a co-op placement at the Department of National Defense, but his position declined rapidly. And during this job, he was still being assessed by psychiatrists at the Ottawa Civic Hospital. In July, their neighbors started hearing loud arguments between them, and Colin was starting to regularly miss work. Um, And Patricia had actually started to come with him to the hospital for psychiatric visits, and she was losing sleep because he was keeping her up at night. I'm not totally sure what he was doing that was keeping her up, but I'm sure it wasn't good. And I also don't know if she was going for her own psychiatric visits or for, like, just regular medical assistance or just as a, like, support person for Colin. So did Colin, like, administer himself, like, take himself to the hospital to get checked out? Did I miss... That's what it sounds like. Okay, so he knew something was not right. Yeah. Yeah, he okay. was... From what my understanding was that he was very aware of his mental state, um, but I'm not totally sure. Okay. <laughs> Mia! <laughs> <laughs> he, like, walked in here and opened the door and just stood there and was like, Meow! <laughs> All right. Um, Okay. Uh, So by August, Patricia's parents actually had to intervene, and they told Colin to give Patricia time to relax so that she could at least function at work because she was losing so much sleep and was not doing well either. And by the time her parents intervened, Patricia was talking about divorcing Colin by Christmas of that year, but she was concerned about waiting so long because she thought it was going to give Colin, like, false hope of reconciliation, which she really didn't want him to have. And then in late August, Colin's mental health had gotten much, much worse, and he was convinced he was dying from a form of, quote, full-body herpes, end quote, and had expressed wanting to commit suicide many times. So Patricia then contacted another psychiatrist who is familiar with Colin's case, and he was then committed or um, admitted to the crisis intervention unit in the Ottawa Civic Hospital. And so this was kind of the breaking point for Patricia, as she told Colin she was filing for divorce while he was in the hospital and immediately hired a lawyer. 
and her lawyer contacted the Ottawa police to voice concerns for Patricia's safety. So this makes me think that there was quite a bit of like abuse and such going on behind the scenes that people weren't aware of at the time. And then in September, Colin was given an overnight pass from the crisis intervention unit to stay with Patricia at their home. Um, it is very odd to me that he was given an overnight pass to stay with her, especially if she was so concerned for her own safety and had filed for divorce. So I don't really know how that came to be. But is this that- an overnight pass like just by himself with her? Like there was yeah. no mediator third party involved? Yeah, it was just he was released for a night. Hmm was my understanding. I don't know. They didn't really have any more information about it, but... Okay. Yeah. And then as soon as he was, like, back in the hospital the next day, he called Patricia to tell her that he was going to kill himself through an overdose. And during his trial, he denied doing this, but he wrote... They described it as, like, an essay that day, so I don't know if it was, like, a journal entry. Um, And it was titled quote, end essay, a rambling diatribe, end quote. And it begins, quote, as I write these lines, I feel certain that I will die shortly of a systemic bodily virus, end quote. So I don't really know what that means. I feel like he's referencing his herpes that he supposedly had, but I'm not totally sure. Okay, I was going to say, just a side note, did he actually have it or is this like a part of the mental illness but it's part of the mental illness okay interesting Um, they never mentioned that he did have herpes or not but i'm assuming due to some other things he was diagnosed with a somatoform disorder which is like a form of mental illness where you like cause symptoms of a disease but that disease may or may not be actually affecting you but you're still distressed. So he probably thought he had herpes due to this mental illness and was acting as though he did and was distressed about it and was like, why aren't the doctors believing me? Like I have this. And then it kind of just snowballed from there. Okay. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah. And so this wouldn't be anything similar to like, say having syphilis and syphilis getting to your brain and causing you to go crazy. Right. No, this is different because there's not actually a disease that causes it. Okay. So like, like, yeah, where syphilis causes degeneration in your brain, but he didn't have... Even if he had herpes, herpes. it still wouldn't... It wouldn't go to your brain. That's what I thought. Just want to make sure. Yeah. Um, And so he was discharged from the hospital on September 9th with this diagnosis of the somatoform disorder. Um. And then after he was discharged, Patricia told him that he wasn't allowed to stay at their house, which she had purchased with the help of her parents. So there was like some legalities there that allowed her to have that as her house and not let him stay there. Um, And so as a result, Colin went to stay with a friend for about a week. And Patricia started a journal that she had titled Diary of Threats. So I'm assuming that was like a log of every time Colin contacted and threatened her after his release. And then over the course of the next two months, Colin harassed Patricia very severely. He was calling her constantly to tell her that he was dying. And it got to the point where she had to get an unlisted telephone number and a friend had to move in with her. 
And then towards the end of September, Colin had called Patricia repeatedly that day. And then after they had gone to bed around 11 p.m., he used his key to open the door and enter her house. And so not surprisingly, they had a huge argument and Patricia ended up having to buy a chain for her door. And so I'm not sure why she wouldn't just like ask for his key back or change the locks or something. But I guess getting a chain is the cheapest, easiest option at that point. Um, and there was no stalking law in Canada at this time. So there was nothing the police could do until an actual crime was committed. So even uh, like if she called the police, they couldn't do anything because his harassment wasn't technically illegal. And then two weeks later, Colin tried to enter her house again, but thanks to the chain, he couldn't get in. So they had a conversation through the door and he eventually agreed to leave. However, once Patricia and her friend had gone to bed, they heard him rattling the windows and patio doors to try to find another way into the house. And so Patricia had called her dad at this point and he was an RCMP officer. So she was like on the phone with the police and then Colin successfully broke into her house, which feels like like breaking and entry is a crime. Yeah. So I don't know why at this point the police still couldn't do anything. When Patricia and her friend saw Colin, they noticed that he had a wrench in his hands, but he remained calm, walked upstairs, and then came back downstairs with a book, which was what he was there for, apparently. But I don't know why he couldn't have just been like, hey, I'm here for this book. Could I have it? Because I feel like she would have been the kind of person to be like, for sure, one second, let me go get that for you. He didn't need to break into the house. And then... By October, Colin had obtained his own separation lawyer and their separation proceedings were being taken care of by their lawyers, so their divorce proceedings were continuing. And then in late October, Colin had bought a weapon that he told his psychiatrist was for suicide. Uh, Over the next week, Colin was regularly admitted to the hospital and repeatedly spoke about suicide and dying and told his friends he'd be dead by the end of the year. And then on November 2nd, he moved into a motel after about a month or so of couch surfing with friends. And then on November 3rd, he met with Patricia to discuss their separation agreement. Later that day, neighbors also saw him like peeping into her windows. Uh, Two days later, Colin signed an application for a firearms acquisition certificate with the Ottawa police. And then on November 11th, he rented a car and moved to a different motel. And the next day, November 12th, he was seen driving around the block of Patricia's house many times. And he even called the police that night to see if his wife had filed any complaints against him that day. And the operator told him that nothing would happen right away unless he was suspected of trying to harm her, which again goes back to the no stalking law. And he wasn't technically breaking any laws by driving around her house. Um... And so this brings us to November 13th, 1991. Uh, Somehow I was able to find an excerpt of their court file that describes exactly what happened that day. So I'm just going to read that. So it goes, on November 13th, 1991, the accused returned to Miss Allen's residence early in the morning, parked his car and waited for her. Miss Allen got in her vehicle and the accused followed her. She drove to her dentist's office on Argyle Avenue in the city of Ottawa, parked her vehicle on the street, and entered her dentist's office shortly before her 8.15 a.m. appointment. The accused entered the parking lot adjacent to the dentist's building at 8.09 a.m. and parked his vehicle. 
He remained in the car waiting for her. Miss Allen left her dentist's office at about 8.30 a.m. She walked to her vehicle. The accused got out of his vehicle and followed her, holding a crossbow hidden in a garbage bag. She got to her vehicle and put her keys in the door. He got up to her and she saw him. She turned around and asked him, what are you doing here? He looked her in the eye and shot a bolt through the garbage bag into her chest. She screamed. He dropped the crossbow in the garbage bag and ran across the parking lot onto McLeod Street. She collapsed to the ground. An ambulance brought her to the hospital where she was pronounced dead. The autopsy would reveal that the bolt passed through the right chest wall, right lung, the heart, aorta, esophagus, left lung, chest wall, and the tip exited through the back. And that is a insanely detailed description of what happened to her. And it's just heartbreaking. That is absolutely wow. brutal. Yeah. And the number of, like, organs that he punctured with that crossbow bolt, like, that's insane. I'm shocked that, like, the one thing that I can think of is that he was still able to acquire the crossbow. Because w- wouldn't there have been complaints filed against him? Like, is that not something that would be checked? I don't think you need a firearms license for a crossbow at this point. Okay. Because he bought the weapon before he got his firearm certificate or whatever. Okay. So then I'm not familiar with firearms or crossbows. Like, do you not need licensing for crossbow type weapons? It changed because of this case. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know specifics. I didn't really go into specifics, but it did change because of this case and the number of incidences um, that have occurred due to people having crossbows. Um, and so Colin immediately turned himself over to the police. And when they asked him how long he had been planning to kill his wife, he answered saying, quote, I don't know. I've been very upset at my wife. I just want to die. I just want to die. It's all I want to do. I want to kill myself now. I want to hang myself in my cell or I want to shoot myself. I'm a monster, end quote. He was obviously very upset with what he did, but it's kind of, I don't know. It just seems like he's almost not pulling the victim card, but like with how he's saying it, he wants people to feel bad for him for doing this. And like, I don't know. That's just kind of the, how I think about it when I hear that. Yeah. I don't think it was so much that like he wanted people to feel bad for him. I think he felt bad for him and he realized, oh shoot, like I want to die, but I killed someone thinking that that would make me feel better, but it didn't. So now I double want to die and my ex-wife is dead. And now I'm going to trial for murder. Like shoot. Yeah, he didn't really think that one through all that well. No. Um, And so, like, my main source kind of mentioned that a lot of her friends and family were aware that their situation was bad, but none of them knew exactly how bad it was. And I feel like this can be said for, like, the majority of domestic abuse cases. And in 1991... The year Patricia was murdered, 87 women were victims of spousal homicide in Canada. And the day after Patricia died, 67 women called the Ottawa police to tell them that they were afraid of their ex-partners. 
And by the end of November, so this happened November 13th, but by the end of November, 453 women had called the Ottawa police to tell them that they were afraid of their spouses or ex-spouses. Wow. That's Which a lot. Is, yeah. In like, like half <sighs> a month span? Yeah. Did, I'm sorry if you mentioned this too, but did she ever look into getting a restraining order or was there no grounds for that? Because technically like nothing had really happened. Like there was no I, law for them to. Yeah, I couldn't find anything. I didn't think to look um, for that, but I'm assuming that because he wasn't doing anything wrong, there was no grounds for a restraining order. Yeah. Okay. Which is unfortunate. Um, And so after she was murdered, a lot of her friends and family petitioned the government to put a ban on crossbows, and they even got the Dean of McGill to write a letter on behalf of the ban, and the Minister of Justice uh, Kim Campbell was in favor of the bill, but she ended up actually withdrawing her support. And then the ban on crossbows was approved in 1994 after a changing government. And the debate in the House of Commons that led to the ban actually specifically mentioned the death of Patricia Allen. Yeah, so like I said, her death was very influential for that. Um, And then in December 1992, a monument was erected in honor of Patricia Allen and six other women who were murdered due to domestic male violence. Um, And this... The monument was erected like a couple days after the anniversary of the murder of the 14 engineering students in Montreal in December 1989. And so now that monument has over 39 names of women who were murdered by their spouses in Canada, which is too many. And so now kind of the trial... Uh, Colin was tried by only a judge rather than a, rather than a judge and a jury. And the judge on this case, Justice Louise Chiron, made this decision after polling people in Ottawa and learning that the majority of people were unsympathetic to him pleading guilty by reason of insanity. And this indicates that there was a prejudice about the case already, so it would not be a fair trial if they were to choose a jury. Um, The use of pretrial polls in Canada was fairly uncommon at this point. I know in a previous episode, we'd kind of talked about how if a case was too well known, then they'd just simply move it to a different area. But they didn't do that in this case because McGregor's defense lawyer argued that McGregor needed to be in daily contact with a psychiatrist. And so he wouldn't be able to attend the trial if it was held in a different spot because he needed to be close to a psychiatrist. And it was also argued that his case was so well-known everywhere, not just in Ottawa. So even moving the case wouldn't help it. Uh, So the judge sentenced or convicted him of first-degree murder and sentenced him to 25 years in prison. He became eligible for parole in 2016. Um, I did not find out if he got out or not, but... During his stay in prison, he edited a magazine, he co-authored a book about preventing suicide, and published a novel called Teammates, which is about about mental health. And it always shocks me how criminals and murderers can write books like this and be published, and I assume profit off of it. Yeah, it's online. I looked it up. It's about, like, three teenagers who do something and they 
have to figure out mental health or something, but that's infuriating. I was like, all right. Um, so he appealed his conviction eight years later, and he said that he was in a trance-like state at the time of the killing, but that did not meet the threshold for new evidence that's needed for an appeal trial. Um, he argued that his pain was from a previously undiagnosed gallbladder disease, which caused him to enter the trance-like dissociative state. And according to his medical records, his gallbladder was actually diseased and it did have to be removed. Um, but, and the pain that he was feeling went away after that, but it couldn't be used as fresh evidence because he didn't mention being in a trance-like state once during the trial or the eight years following. It was like, all of a sudden he was like, oh, actually I was in a trance. Um, and so additionally, the many psychiatrists who examined him after the incident and none of them mentioned that he was in a dissociative state so there was no expert evidence to even support his claims. And the psychiatrist who was treating him while he was working for the National Department of Defense even mentioned that he had the capacity to appreciate the moral wrongfulness of an act. So it's highly unlikely that he wasn't aware of what he was doing. And we can even kind of see that when he talked to the police officers after and then, so that's pretty much all I have on the murder of Patricia Allen. And I would just like to mention that domestic violence is such a prevalent issue, especially while we were in lockdown and a lot of people were stuck in the house with their abuser. And so just make sure to reach out to your loved ones, especially if you think they're in an abusive relationship and make sure you're aware of options to help get them out safely when they decide that they want to leave. And so for the U.S., you can call... 1-800-799-SAFE or 7233 and you can text START S-T-A-R-T to 88788 and there is also information available at thehotline.org and for Canadian residents it's advised to call 911 but there are crisis hotlines that exist and we will post a link to a website that has most of them listed as they are specific to each province so just yeah be aware of that this topic is kind of really heavy this week but it's important to know and be aware of so that things like this don't happen i will note too on the um the hotline.org it is um there are features on that if you are in a situation and like you don't want someone seeing that you're on that site. It's you're able to easily close out of it um, without leaving really a trace behind. Um, so it is pretty discreet in in that way. Yeah, definitely. So that's all the information that I have. But this case was absolutely heartbreaking and not uncommon in its entirety, which is also heartbreaking. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's always saddening to like realize and understand what's the word like yeah just realize that so much of this happens I guess like it's a lot more prevalent than you think and I feel like it's not talked about a lot um but yeah so but yeah like th sorry, sorry I was just gonna say like <laughs> even with Canada there's not a domestic violence hotline that you can call that's available for every Canadian. It's provincial 
Well, because you and I were looking, we're, we were trying to find hotlines, and it's disheartening that there's not one number to call. Like, it was quite difficult to find sources for it and to find numbers they're really Um, like even on the government websites there's no number that's like contact these people if you're a victim of domestic violence it was call 911 yeah but with this case she couldn't just call 911 because there was nothing the police could do yeah which is ridiculous but oh well well thank you for sharing that with us i had never learned about her case even in all of my forensic and legal psych classes so it was very interesting to hear about that um and with this case underway Rebecca do you want to kind of switch gears and talk to us about how it helped the legal or how it kind of set the legal precedent in Canada and the snowball effect I guess afterwards yeah um I would love to so Stalking is an old behavior, but a new crime. This quotation was written by J.R. Melroy in his book called The Psychology of Stalking in 1998. I thought it was a very relevant quote to start this discussion uh, on stalking, as it very quickly but effectively sums up the truth of stalking in the legal systems worldwide. Um, Stalking has been a very prevalent crime throughout all of history, uh, but it's been very undocumented because it hasn't been a crime, and it's only within the last couple decades that it's been recognized as a punishable crime by legal systems worldwide. The first country to criminalize stalking was the United States. They did this in 1990. Um, It was in California, and they passed the first anti-stalking law after activists fighting against domestic violence had openly expressed their concerns over the behavior. So in the 1980s, uh, media began covering stories of star stalking. And this was basically just covering cases of celebrities who were being stalked by, uh, also sometimes killed by their fans. One of the prominent stalking turned murder star cases of this time was that of Rebecca Schaefer. She was a TV actress who in 1989 was stalked and then murdered in California by one of her so-called fans. So... With the rise of star stalking, or at least the rise of media attention to star stalking in California, the entertainment industry started to try like pushing for criminal charges against the individuals who were stalking these celebrities. Um, But domestic violence activists of the time were trying to get the media and the government to kind of see the bigger picture and realize that stalking isn't only a problem that's plaguing celebrities. So they argued that women attempting to leave abusive relationships would often try to get restraining orders against their abusers, but that they weren't really well enforced and they were very often violated by the person that the order was brought against. So after hearing their arguments and seeing the prevalence of this behavior, uh, the first anti-stalking law of the United States and likely the world, as I had mentioned, was passed in 1990. So By the year 2000, so just 10 years after the first uh, anti-stalking law, all 50 states had criminal laws against the behavior, and other countries were also beginning to criminalize the act. So Canada was one of those countries that followed suit. Uh, They did this on August 1st of 1993 with the passing of Bill C-126. There was no 
one specific case of stalking that prompted Canada to pass this bill. Um, but instead, it was created with the hopes of protecting women from repeated harassment that could potentially lead to more adverse events, such as we had just heard about in the case of Patricia Allen. Um, and it's also worth mentioning that the case of Patricia Allen happened just a year before Canada passed these laws. So it is very likely that her case was one of those heard in the decision to criminalize uh, stalking. So uh, the government believed that having a law against the repeated stalking behaviors with penalties linked to it could help deter people from committing the act as well as hold them accountable uh, when they did it to maybe prevent it from occurring in the future. So Bill C-126 had recommended amendments to the, at the time, current laws surrounding violence and sexual violence. One of the amendments that was suggested was the addition of a new crime to the criminal code, uh, which was criminal harassment. And criminal harassment is what stalking is considered in the legal system. So for the rest of this discussion, I'll probably be using stalking and criminal harassment kind of interchangeably, uh, but they mean the same thing. So... With the passing of Bill C-126, Section 264 of the Criminal Code of Canada was created, making stalking or criminal harassment a crime. So Section 264 of the Code is still in place today, thankfully, um, and it has three subsections that specify exactly what is considered criminal harassment. Um, this make that... Sorry, this may get a little bit dry for the next minute, uh, but I'm just going to read Section 264 just to provide exactly what Canada considers criminal harassment. So subsection one says that no person shall, without lawful authority and knowing that another person is harassed um, or recklessly as to whether the other person is harassed, Engage in conduct referred to in subsection two that causes the other person reasonably in all the circumstances to fear for their safety or the safety of anyone known to them. So just a quick break from subsections. Um, the language they use in the criminal code is like really inaccessible to a lot of people. Like even I'm reading this and I'm just slightly confused. Um, but basically what it's saying is that if you know that you are harassing someone or you know that the person you're trying to contact does not want you to continue contacting them, uh, it's, it's technically stalking. Um, so subsection two says the conduct mentioned in subsection one consists of a repeatedly following from place to place, the other person or anyone known to them B repeatedly communicating with, either directly or indirectly, the other person or anyone known to them. C, besetting or watching the dwelling house or place where the other person or anyone known to them resides, works, carries on business, or happens to be. Or D, engaging in threatening conduct directed at the other person or any member of their family. So the third subsection um, says that every person who contravenes this section is guilty of A, an indictable offense and is liable to imprisonment for a term not exceeding 10 years, or B, an offense punishable by a summary conviction, um, which I don't completely remember what a summary conviction is. I believe it's, it's, it's not a criminal charge, um, but you do still face uh, fines and possibly jail time. 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Um, so summary conviction in Canada is the least serious kind of cr criminal offense um, under the criminal code. It's also known as a petty crime. And so an example of this would be like disturbing the peace. Okay. Yes. So yeah, basically um, you can either get a maximum of 10 years in prison on an indictable crime, or you can basically be charged with a petty crime, which in my opinion, stalking is not just a petty crime. I agree. Can they be like, so in the case of like Patricia Allen, say this was in place, could he have gotten 10 years plus his murder charge? I know like it'll still be 25 plus parole eligibility, but like would it tack on to that kind of thing? Um, I would think so. Like I'm not positive, but I would think like when, when looking at a murder charge, like if, if say they sexually assaulted them and then murdered them like they they do get charged with both of them and then as you said if it's a life imprisonment like it's still only going to be 25 years but that impacts like parole decisions um so i think if this was in place when patricia allen's uh case was being heard then he likely would have been charged with both harassment uh as well as murder Okay, that makes sense. And I think we've talked about it on here before, but for any non-Canadian listeners, our life imprisonment is, like we said, 25 years. And then after that, it's typically like a 10 plus year parole ineligibility. Um, but usually if you do a horrific crime and kill a whole bunch of people, you are not going to be eligible for parole for a very, very long time. Sorry, yeah, just to clear that up. Oh yeah, <laughs> I don't know if that would have confused anyone. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a good thing to clear up. <laughs> um, so to be considered a victim of criminal harassment, uh, physical harm or property damage by the perpetrator is not required. Um, this law, so Section Two Sixty Four, was specifically designed to protect individuals from all forms of harm, uh, and this includes psychological, emotional, and physical. Um, so in addition, uh, it's meant to prevent more heinous crimes from occurring, such as murder, we, as we saw with, with Patricia Allen, or like physical or sexual assault. Um, I would also like to note that men can be victims as well of criminal harassment. I know the initial bill was created, uh, it said it was created to protect women, um, but men can be victims of stalking and women can be charged with criminal harassment. This isn't like a gender thing where it only applies to one. So stalking can look like many behaviors. Um, just some of them, there are many more than this, but just some of them include repeated phone calls, texts, emails, any kind of communication that's unwarranted and excessive, uh, physically following you around, threatening you, threatening your friends, your family, anyone you know, uh, sending you gifts despite your wishes not to, or just sending uh, like excessive gifts, again, like the case of Patricia Allen, uh, also tracking your movements, and much more than that. Um, A recent thing that um, I've found through like TikTok and stuff like that are the Apple air tags, people in like, I don't know if it's all domestic violence or whatever situations or scenarios, but people are putting Apple air tags on their victims' cars to like track where they are. I've been seeing a lot about that as well. It's very scary because they're so small and so easy mm -hmm. to put somewhere like inconspicuous. 
Yeah. Thankfully, like, I know not everyone has an iPhone, but there is a feature that will alert you if they think something's tracking, like an AirTag is following you. Um, But not everyone has an iPhone, and there's ways to do it with Android. But I don't know. It just seems like a lot of work to try and be safe when you shouldn't have to worry about that. Yeah. No, I completely agree. It shouldn't be that easy to put a GPS tracker on someone's vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Um, so despite stalking being considered a new crime, it has been known to occur all throughout history. It's just been very poorly documented because it wasn't a crime. So we don't really have much like old, old history of it occurring. We just know that because it's such a prevalent behavior now, it was definitely happening before when it couldn't be criminalized. Um, so one thing that we do know about stalking prior to criminalization is that, um, before being called stalking, uh, it was coined by a different name. Uh, so in the early 1900s, the term erotomania was used by psychiatrists to describe, quote, the delusion of being loved by someone, often a prominent or even famous person, unquote. So many people who were diagnosed with erotomania often got this diagnosis because they took their obsession uh, with this person they believed to be loved by to the point of following these people, uh, and as we know today, uh, stalking them. Um, so I feel like that happens to a lot, like, when Justin Bieber was first famous, I feel like a lot of the young girls could have been diagnosed with erotomania because they went absolutely nuts over him. And I'm sure they were like following him and screaming at him because they're like, oh, like he loves me. He's going to choose me. Yeah. No, I feel like I agree. I mean, there's I remember when One Direction got really big. Um I think it was Niall Horan. There was a, like, just a text post on, like, Tumblr, and it was this girl saying, like, every single detail about his life to even the exact time of his birth. And Niall Horan responded to it, and he said, I didn't even know the exact time of my birth. Like, how did you find this out? Oh, my God. Yeah, like, it's... I do agree with you that if this was still a diagnosis, I think there are a lot of fans of... um, some particular boy bands and singers that could have uh, gotten this. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Well, I think it's also that, like, because it's not really well-defined, like, people may not even know they're stalking. Like, they just may think, I'm such a hardcore fan of these people. But, like, like you were saying about Justin Bieber, like, people were going to his mom's house in Stratford in just a just outside London they were sitting outside of his house or like going I I think there's like a museum for him in Stratford I don't know probably yeah the museum is actually his childhood home oh my gosh yeah (laughs) wow I want to go okay (laughs) but I mean like yeah even I I was like oh I have this t-shirt that says Justin Bieber's number one girl and I'm the only one who has it so it means that (laughs) we're gonna get married like I didn't follow him to his house but if he was in my town I definitely would have yeah like it didn't take much yeah so I feel like it's very common even nowadays yeah absolutely and as we like in the next episode, um, talking about typologies, like there is a typology related to this. So I'll, I will get more into it, uh, later on. Um, 
But um, in a study that was conducted in 2007 by Pittsburgh and QPAC, um, they were interested in learning about more statistics of stalking. Um, so through a meta-analysis study, which basically just means they took a whole lot of scientific studies about the topic they were interested in, so in this case, stalking, and they did a really big statistical analysis of the st statistical analyses of all these studies. <laughs> um, so through this, they created a sample of 122,207 people um, with data, all of the individuals, I believe, were from the United States and from Canada. Um, they had found that in 49% of cases of criminal harassment, the stalking had emerged from pre-existing romantic relationships. Um, and in 79% of the cases, uh, the victims reported having known their stalker, with the remaining 21% being stalked by like a complete stranger. Which is also very scary because it's like how do you know who i am in the first place but yeah so uh it was also found throughout their study uh that in 54 percent of the stalking cases that were examined uh some form of threat was involved in 32 percent of cases uh it involved physical violence and 12 percent of those cases involved sexual violence um, getting into some Canadian-specific statistics, the most recent data I can find right now on criminal harassment in Canada comes from Statistics Canada's Police Reported Crime Statistics in Canada 2020 report. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it is the name of it if you'd like to look it up. I honestly spend so much time just reading it every year because I think it's super interesting. It reports the statistics of like every crime in Canada and their prevalence and how it's changed. Um, but the 2020 report had said that in 2019, there were 23,148 reported cases of criminal harassment in Canada. And in 2020, there were 24,322. So it rose like very slightly from 2019 to 2020. Um, wow. And then it had also said that between 2010 and 2020, so a decade, there was a 2% increase in reported criminal harassment cases. Wow. Yeah, it's very sad. Like, obviously, Canada has, what, like 35 million people, but still, I, that's still a lot of people to experience this. <laughs> yeah, like, I guess 2020 numbers, that's over 2000 a month. <laughs> Plus, that's also, what would it be? Like, only those being reported. Like, not everything goes reported, Well, right? exactly, because this is only ones that were reported to the police. And yeah. as we know, I can't remember if we've spoken about it in the past, but, like, I wouldn't say majority, but at least half of the crimes that are committed are not reported to the police. Like, this is it's such an, an absurdly high number. Yeah, like, the, it, this is probably such an understatement for how many are actually yeah. experiencing it. Well, especially, especially, with... <laughs> especially because you're in a pandemic at that time. So you were literally locked in your house for most of the year and there were yeah. still 24,000 cases of criminal harassment. Yeah. That's bonkers. Yeah, it's unreal, honestly. Like, it's scary. Yeah. Um, so one other thing that was reported by Statistics Canada, although I'm kind of unsure of the year because I found this 
on a Government of Canada page about stalking, um, they found that eight out of 10 victims of criminal harassment are female, um, and nine out of 10 of perpetrators of criminal harassment are male. So while it can happen to men and women can be perpetrators, this is a crime that it's it does it's, it is much more likely to occur to a woman, but that does not mean that it's any less serious if a man is experiencing this or if a woman is perpetrating it. Um so I would honestly really love to go more into statistics and talking about the details uh, of stalking and its typologies, because while it's a really scary crime, it's also just really interesting to learn about because there is so much to it and it's such a young crime. Um, but to go more into the topic, um, I need to start discussing specific typologies, um, which I know is what we're discussing next episode. So I don't want to like give away half the next episode. Um, so for now, I'm going to leave the discussion here, uh, just so that we have a good pickup point next time for the science. Um, but in the meantime, uh, if anyone has any like questions or discussion points about stalking that they might be interested in hearing more about for our next episode, um, definitely like don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions. And even if we don't see it in time for the episode, like we'll still do our very best to answer those questions. Um, and also before ending this, I'd like to just say something very similar to what journey was saying about reaching out because domestic violence is so prevalent. Um, a lot of people kind of, I guess not so much now, but a lot of people used to kind of downplay stalking and just kind of say like, Oh, well, it just means they really love you or it's not that bad. They're not going to hurt you, all that sort of stuff. But it is a very serious and frightening crime, especially to the victims and their families. So if you are, or someone, you know, is being stalked or think they might be, please do not hesitate to reach out to your loved ones, to support resources, to the police, like anyone you think might help. There are a lot of resources for victims of stalking that the government of Canada recognizes, although like Journey and Nicole had said, they recognize them, but they don't provide them on a website just to easily go and click. Um, but just some examples of places you could go for help include just to the police, like directly calling 911 if it's urgent, um, but also going to victim services, which is in every province. It's a government um, program to help victims of crime. Um, you can call a crisis line. And as Jory and Nicole said, again, we are going to be posting a document or a citation with all the province's crisis lines. Um, and you can also seek a mental health office because stalking is a very serious offense that even without any form of physical violence can still cause an amount, an, sorry, an immense amount of psychological distress to the victims and those known to them. So this was a little bit of a, uh, I don't want to say deeper, but I guess more like solemn episode in the sense that like they're very pre prevalent and scary crimes. But if you are experiencing it, definitely reach out to someone because it, there are people to help. That being said too, um, we are here to help. Like if you aren't in a position where you're comfortable enough to reach out to someone close to you, we have our contact form that has like our email and all of our social medias. Like you can be very discreet about it. Like we're always 
here to help our listeners because we know everything we talk about is very dark and we know that people go through a lot of the stuff that we talk about or experience it. Um, so yeah, even if you just need someone to talk to, we are always here for you guys. Um, okay. Well, I'm not going to end this episode with a joke because I feel like that would be the most insensitive thing I could do. Um, so yeah, I don't really know how to end this one except just we're here for you. Reach out. We're going to put those links. Um, we'll find a way to put them on like our main page or somewhere that's easily accessible. So you don't have to go digging around like we did with the, um, Canadian ones. But yeah, Journey, where can people find us? People can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WTForensicsPC. Our website is WhatTheForensics.ca, and that's where we'll have all of this domestic violence information posted. Um, our email is WhatTheForensics at gmail.com, so please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or just want someone to talk to. Um, we would love to hear from each and every one of you. Um, but yeah, that's where people can uh, reach us. I kind of, my brain shut off at the end of that. Sorry. That's okay. Um, and like we've kind of mentioned throughout this episode, next episode that airs, will we will continue with this discussion, um, Less of a domestic violence viewpoint. We'll be covering Richard Ramirez. So he's more, he's the night stalker. He's got a different typology behind him. But with that being said, we're going to cover this, the typologies and the differences and kind of how stalking arises in people, I guess. Um, so keep your eye out for that. And this has been another episode of What the Forensics. Please take tonight for yourself and decompress after this one. And we hope you have a lovely evening, day, morning, whenever you're listening to this. And on that, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. Thank you for joining us, like always, and we'll see you next time. Bye! Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm -hmm.